You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Payments Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Ernenwein, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, Ron Shevlin. How are you, Ron? Doing great, Scott. Great to be with you. Thanks. So Ron is the Chief Research Advisor at Cornerstone Advisors. He's also a senior contributor to Forbes and is the basically the fintech snark tank guy on LinkedIn and Twitter. And so I'm really happy to have Ron on because I know that internally at Currency Cloud and amongst friends within fintech, your articles get shared everywhere on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And you are really a, a good voice in the industry, especially in the United States. So it's, it's really exciting to have you on our podcast. Oh, thanks, Scott. Appreciate that. So for those who might not know your background, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started at Cornerstone Advisors, how long you've been doing research, and, and why fintech, and why, you know, why fintech snark tank, and how that began, and, and why do you think it's so important? Sure. Well, basically, I've been a consultant for a long time. I was consulting part K- KPMG, uh, Nolan Norton's IT strategy group years ago, looking at uh, how IT strategy supports business strategy. But to be honest, Scott, I was a terrible consultant, hated being on the road all the time, and was very fortunate in 97 to land a position at Forrester Research, which in a lot of ways was the same thing as consulting, just with a kind of a different deliverable. Instead of uh, only telling one company what they should be doing, I got to write things and tell a whole lot of companies what they should be doing with IT and, and how to manage it. And then at the end of 1999, Forrester approached me and said, hey, how would you like to be the uh, research director of the financial services team? And what I didn't know at that point was that the reason they were asking me to take that position was because nobody else in the company was stupid enough to take it. (laughs) So I did and got into financial services. And then a couple of years later, actually went back to being an analyst, stepped out of the research director role. And did that, uh, was that not Forrester for nine years and then left and went to another analyst firm here in the Boston area where I live called IT Group. And then I guess it's been about eight years. I'm coming up on seven years with Cornerstone. So it was about eight years ago that Cornerstone approached. And Cornerstone's a mid-sized consulting firm focused on the mid-sized bank and credit union market. And I had known these guys for a long time and they called and said, hey, we'd love for you to be our research director. I was like, I didn't even know you guys did research. (laughs) And they're like, we don't. That's what we need you for. So I joined to start a research practice, you know, very much modeled after the analyst firms like Forrester and Gartner and IT Group, with the big difference being that we don't do any kind of subscription work. Everything's all the research is commissioned, and we do a lot of advisory work to fintechs and to the technology vendor community and financial services, as well as uh, you know the, the consulting work to the financial institutions that that our uh, colleagues on the consulting side do. And so, you know, listen, I've been focused on technology long before the word fintech ever came around. And so it just sort of was a natural evolution that, hey, focused on financial services and technology. Okay, I guess, I guess I'm a fintech expert. Yeah, I guess you're a fintech guy now. And what a great buzzword that is, fintech. Just roll, rolls off the tongue. But you know, that, that's quite a resume. And I think your position as somebody that used to advise the 
I don't want to say legacy because they're they're such an important part of our our banking and financial ecosystem, but the traditional banking system of mid-sized banks and community banks, but also the new age of, of fintech. So you're kind of sitting in between the old and the new. And I think that's super interesting, especially because of those, some of your last articles that touch upon the interplay between the community banks and the mid-sized banking, banking infrastructure and the fintechs and, and how they work together and partner together to, to work. So one particular article to, to get us started, just because it was recent that I read, was your article on VAS programs and how banking as a service is, is changing the fintech landscape and changing how people launch their businesses. Could you tell me a little bit about that and, and how the VAS fintechs work together with the community banks to launch this joint service? Yeah, I'll assume, I guess, or maybe we shouldn't assume that everybody listening knows what BAS is. And so in case they don't, it's an acronym, stands for Banking as a Service. And it often gets thrown into the mix when talking about embedded finance. So it might be helpful to kind of just lay out definitions here, Scott, just so that everybody you know has a solid understanding of where we're coming from, or at least where I'm coming from, because I think of embedded finance as the provisioning of financial services by non-financial institutions. That could be a fintech without a license, or it could be a brand like a Walmart, a Nike, or you know whoever. And in order for them to provide banking services, for them to, that is, embed finance, they need to partner with a financial institution. The, provi- the provisioning of the services required to provide those underlying financial services is banking as a service. So it's in some respects, there's two sides of the coin, but embedded finance, I think, is a much bigger umbrella where banking as a service is what the financial institutions provide as the service. So in some, it's kind of funny you talk about banking as a service services. I wish there was a better term. I, I keep writing that all the time. So love for, for another term to, to come up. So why is this becoming so important? Well, you know, it's funny is that many banks kind of poo-poo this as an opportunity and they don't they, they see it as a as a threat. You know, they don't think that brands, non-financial institutions should be providing banking services. That's what they have the license for. They see it as a threat. They see fintechs like Chime is nothing more than a front-end marketing engine. And I think it's a very narrow view of the world. In effect, banking as a service or the, the companies, the brands and the fintechs who are looking to embed finance and need these services you know, are, are, are simply new distribution channels for, for banks. If you're a, a regional bank, not even a regional, if you're a community bank you know, located in a particular you know, area of the country, since your market tends to be very limited from a geographic perspective. But uh, so take like a Green Dot Bank. Green Dot Bank, if they were just to be another community bank, would probably be a very limited sized bank. But by partnering with brands like Walmart, they have an opportunity to support 10 times, maybe even 100 times the, the number of customers that they could if they were on their own. It's a different business model for sure, because somebody else, in this case, Walmart or the, whoever the brand or the fintech is, is the front end who is acquiring the customers. But hey, can you imagine what a benefit it would be for banks if you could reduce the cost of customer acquisition by having another company provide it? Yes, you lose 
the brand awareness with the customer, but your your margins go way up, your profitability go goes way up. So there's, I think, a lot of opportunity in this banking as a service model, but we still haven't kind of addressed yet. So why is there even an interest in this? And the interest comes in because a lot of brands and across a lot of different range of industries recognize two things, Scott. They recognize, number one, that in many cases, what they're providing to their existing customer base involves things like payments or financing or insurance, sometimes even investing, investments, and to just tell the customer, okay, you, we're, we're done with our part. Now go off and get the financing or go off and do the payment stuff or go off and get your insurance and come back when you're done is not a great experience. And so by embedding finance into their, into their user or customer experience, they're providing a better experience to their customers and they're providing better economics and they can make more money and they're providing financial institutions an opportunity to, to reach more customers as well. And so what it does for the brand or the fintech is it creates this flywheel effect, which says, hey, we made the customer experience better. Therefore, we've developed a more loyal customer and a stickier customer because now we've got both their product relationship and to some extent their financial relationship by improving the, improving the experience. So as I kind of look at the model, I think it's a win-win for pretty much everybody around. And we've the Cornerstone, we're in the process of analyzing a customer a consumer survey that we fielded recently, asking consumers about their interest in getting a wide range of financial services from brands. We got very specific looking at retailers, gaming companies, automobile companies. And there's a lot of interest in this, and especially in various pockets of the consumer segments, like in terms of like gamers, creators, gig economy workers, small businesses. It's not necessarily just your everyday consumer with a full-time job at you know some company, but a lot of consumers, you know, based on their interests and their behaviors, are finding that there's a lot of benefit to getting these types of financial services from other providers that they do business with. And I think we're at the really early end of the you know, very beginning of this, this whole trend. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's totally underestimated how much goes into offering those services as a brand. Like when we log into Uber or we log into pay something for Walmart, or we log into these brands that are offering this embedded finance service, we don't realize how much behind the scenes goes into it and how much that these underlying banks are involved. And as you said, the brand isn't there. You don't see the brand of the community bank or the regional bank that's involved. I guess my next question is, there, you demonstrated the value to both the bank and the brand for working together and providing the service. But why is it that the brand needs the bank? Why can't they just do it on their own and, and launch these financial service products on their own and and, and do it without the bank? Why do they need to involve a community bank that's not known for its technology or its integration know-how? And, and why don't they just do it themselves? You know, there's a lot of reasons, but I'll kind of boil it down to what I think the two most important reasons are. Number one, just simply from a regulatory perspective, they're not allowed to provide some of these services. It has to be done with somebody with a bank charter or a bank license. But there's another very important reason to it beyond just the regulatory aspect, which is the brands, and in many cases, even the fintechs, don't have the business know-how. 
They don't do underwriting. They don't do risk management. They don't do accounting, you know, for, at the account level, you know, from a you know a deposits and you know in, inputs and outputs, deposits and liabilities perspective. So you know, there's a lot of banking functionality, financial services functionality that goes on here. That you know, a brand, if they were to do it themselves, would basically have to either buy a bank to do it or hire a lot of people to do it. You know, Scott, it's really not unlike why so many businesses use a third party to clean the offices at at the end of the day. You know, I don't know if they're still doing it now, you know, post-pandemic, of course, but, you know, there's always a third party or generally a third party that does that. Why? Because there's somebody else who's good at doing that. You don't want to have to manage it all, and you probably don't even have the internal capabilities to to do that. It's you know, it's it's you're just outsourcing the capability to somebody who does it better, more economical. And then there's the case of the well, and you need the license to do it. So you know, I wouldn't just focus on the technology aspect to it. This is a challenge for many banks who do want to provide these services. In some cases. You know, there's a, even another third party involved, and this is another you know big growing opportunity. The growth of the think of them as the BAS platform providers, companies like Sinkterra and Unit and Treasury Prime, and uh, uh, many more. And every time I mention it, somebody else emails me and goes, "Hey, you didn't mention me." So uh, apologize to all of those you that didn't mention, but hey, you're in the list, and it's a growing opportunity. Um, you know that will help the banks integrate with the brands and the fintechs in order to to deliver these services. But at the fundamental level, Scott, it's really about a set of business services that the bank provides to the brands and to the fintechs around risk management and underwriting and you know the 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 core the, the core banking functions. Yeah, it's not as easy as it looks just to to launch these services and and shout out to the the BAS programs that you mentioned. I know that in my partnerships role, I manage a number of, of BAS fintechs and they're all great people. And we wouldn't be able to launch some of our projects and work with some of our customers without them. So I know that even at Currency Cloud, which is a fintech and does have great technology and, and regulation across the globe, we still need to rely on the BAS or the BAS fintech and then through the BAS fintech connected to some community bank in order to offer our services. So it, it really runs deep. It's not something that you can easily just perform on your own and swap out. It's, it's highly complicated. They're embedded in our laws. They're embedded in our in our history. And so it's something that is is quite special that what they do. And I think that gets lost when we refer to them as like the legacy banking infrastructure, because they're really part of the same fintech ecosystem. They're just in the behind the scenes role. So you mentioned the obviously embedded finance is growing and you know you don't need to be a financial expert to, to understand that every time you log into an app, there's some sort of financial service being offered now. But what about the banks? So you mentioned that their brand is not sitting center stage in this embedded finance ecosystem, but what's the future of those banks? How are they going to, are they just going to be become behind the scenes players and they're going to be communicating with their customers through these brands, or are they going to continue to perform their services to the mom and pop shops in, in their areas and the people that are, are in their neighborhoods? Like, What is the future of these community banks that for so long we've relied on for our, our basic needs, for basic financial needs? Yeah, I don't think it's a, a an either or proposition here. I mean, I think there are certainly a number of community banks or just banks now who are very focused on the BAS opportunity and, and see that, and they're less focused on direct to 
consumer or direct to business, you know, they see the bass opportunity as their major, you know, focus. But I think, you know, there even the projections that I've made, Scott, in five years from now, I don't really see a whole lot more than 300 banks. That's what I projected. Maybe there'll be more doing this. If there are more, I, I'm not sure that the, you know, the demand will be there to let them grow to, to have that large of a bass type business. But I think where the market goes is, and in both in a bass perspective as well as sort of the traditional perspective is more towards a you know a more specialized set of offerings if you look at most community banks today they do everything under the sun from a banking perspective they've got retail they've got business banking they've got small business banking and lending and so forth and they've got every you know payment type that's available and a, a wide range of lending types now i think for a lot of banks who want to get into the bass game they have to be probably good at some particular service, whether it's a set of payments or a set of lending type of approaches. And that might not be just a product specialization, but it can be a, a customer specialization. I, I alluded to before to, to Green Dots, a great example as a result of their work with Walmart. You know, They really know the low to middle income consumer market. There might be other community banks who, let's say, you know, give you well, the example I'd give you is more from the credit union side than the bank side. But I always love to use Los Angeles Police Federal Credit Union, who knows the law enforcement market. Now, there are a lot of providers out there who sell to law enforcement professionals who would love to embed banking. Well, you you go to a bank or a credit union who knows your customer base really well. So I think there's this specialization both in the bass and in the general banking world that you know we trend towards over the next few years and so for many of these banks who want to get into bass they have to leverage the specialization that they're good at today either from a product or segment perspective and then both capitalize on that capability both in a bass and in a non-bass strategy yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense and i, I liked particularly what you said about the specialization aspect i think that that gets lost um, sometimes and in, in the importance of, of knowing their customer and, and knowing what's important and building over the course of like their existence, specialized services to, to best serve that market. Yeah, the, the, there's a lot of criticism for, uh, of banks from other banks, you know, who say, oh, they're just renting their charter. It's a rent a charter. That's going away. You can't just rent your charter anymore. That's not what the brands are looking for. The brands are looking for help in understanding the financial needs. How do we sell these products to our customers? How do we you know, support and service them? And so they don't want to do business with just the bank who's giving them their charter. And they want somebody who can really you know, help deliver a set of financial services to their unique set of customers. So the specialization, I think, becomes really important over the next couple of years. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Now, Pivoting slightly, so we talked a little bit about embedded finance and the services that banks are offering to fintechs and banks are offering to other large brands. You wrote recently about embedded fintech and why embedded fintech is different than embedded finance. And I'll let you explain the, the, the intricacies of it. But from my understanding, it's kind of the turnaround of embedded finance rather than a bank you know, inserting its services and know-how and regulation into a fintech or a brand, the fintech is embedded, embedding its services into that of the bank in order to help them innovate. Can you talk about a little bit about that and, and what that means and what are the challenges that either side is facing when they're, they're launching this embedded fintech model? 
Sure. So again, if embedded finance is the provisioning of financial services from non-financial institutions, embedded fintech is embedding fintech products into financial institutions, products, websites, mobile applications, and so forth. And I think there's a, you know, a number of growing examples of this, things like subscription management services, bill negotiation services from like a you know, true bill. And then increasingly, what's probably going to emerge is sort of a, the number one use case for embedded fintech is probably going to be crypto investing over the next 12 to 18 months. But there's other examples of this, you know, a company that provides digital identity protection and fraud protection, things like that, that they integrate into banks' mobile applications. So that's, that's all, those are all examples of embedded fintech and you know, becoming very important for, for the banks because with so many different providers out there offering a specialized set of services, they need to really expand their product offerings and they can't build this stuff themselves nor are they actually going to get it from either their core. In many cases, they're not going to get it from their digital banking provider either. But what the smart digital banking providers are now offering, Scott, are platforms that enable the banks to integrate. Q2's Helix is a great example of this. They integrate things like auto books, small business accounting and payments capabilities, so that the banks can easily just flip a switch and provide these capabilities. Now, you still have to have the business capabilities behind that, of course, but the technology piece is kind of taken care of. So, you know, it kind of flips the model of embedded finance around a little bit to, you know, the banks focusing on embedding non, you know, really their, their ancillary type services. In many cases, you know, they're, they're money related, but they're not truly a financial service. It's not a deposit product. It's not a, a loan. It's, it's, you know, not a traditional kind of financial product. It's just something around money management or, you know, associated or affiliated with the deposit or lending account itself. But these are opportunities and really important for the banks these days, because I have a colleague who coined the term, the revenue recession that banks are you know, facing a revenue recession separate and apart from what's going on in the economy as the margins get slammed, as you know, the non-banks increase their mortgage lending, uh, the mortgage market share. And you look at sort of the whole payments displacement. You know, I was just doing some work this morning, Scott estimated that on a weekly basis, there's $10 billion sitting in merchants' mobile apps, you know, like Starbucks and Lyft and Uber and, you know, CVS, $10 billion that are sitting in those apps. That's $10 billion that used to be sitting in the bank and is no longer in the bank. And, you know, that's no longer money that the the bank is going to see interchange on. So there's a huge pressure on the banks to increase their non-interest income, especially now with all the pressure on overdraft fees, that's going to cut that even more. So the idea around embedded fintech is very important, not just from sort of a competitive positioning perspective, but as ways of creating new revenue streams. Yeah, I mean, that sums it up right there. Amongst your, when I was reading your writing on embedded fintech, you mentioned something called the embedded fintech factory. And so you kind of rattled off some of the different services that banks would be looking to launch with the fintechs. What do you mean by embedded fintech factory? And I'm also interested to hear about the different challenges that banks face when they're trying to embed fintech services into their core offering. I know that Currency Cloud offers services to banks and 
in my role as an account manager, I managed a number of banks and, and I saw the challenges that they had in, in interacting with an API-based platform. So could you talk a little bit about the embedded fintech factory and some of the challenges that banks face when they're trying to launch these new fintech services to become more competitive in a market where some of their traditional revenue streams are, are, are shrinking? Yeah, what I was trying to get at with the term factory is I was hoping that would evoke the idea of a manufacturing plant where you know it had assembly lines where you know things you just you put the inputs in, they go along the process, you add a little things here and there, and then boom, at the end of the process, there's the product and it's and it's repetitive, it's understood, you know, and and it and it's something that you know the manufacturer does on our on an ongoing basis. Today, if you look at most banks in terms of what new product design, development, deployment looks like, well, first of all, in a lot of community banks, there's no new product design development. It's, hey, vendor, what are you offering that we might be able to, to put in there? Or if they do want to deploy some form of new product, it's a, a one-off well, let's go contract with these people, develop, go do it, and or, or maybe it's an internal process, whatever it might be. But there's no, there's no repetition. There's no factoring. There's no capability to kind of do this on an ongoing basis. And part of this is sort of the history of banking, Scott, where every new product had to be a, a grand slam, not even just a home run. It had to be a grand slam. You know, For you to deploy a new product in a bank, you had to prove that this was going to generate a certain, you know, very high level of revenue, that there was huge demand for these things. And I think the reality of the banking world today is that thanks to the internet, thanks to the, the, the technology platforms that are in place, you can or need to be thinking about deploying many new products and services, none of which will ever hit, hit the threshold of the the big grand slams, you need, you know, to use the sports analogies, you need singles and doubles, not home runs and grand slams. And so as a result, you need both a business capability and a technology capability to quickly define, develop, roll out and deploy many different types of services that aren't going to apply to everybody. It may, you know, you may only get 10% adoption among your, your existing customer base, but the cost to the customer, the cost to you, the bank of deploying this still makes it a profitable thing. But you've got to be able to, you know, rinse, lather, repeat, you know, on a on a, on a frequent basis to, to get these things out the door. It can't be a, a new process every time. So, you know, I use the term factory, and I'm sure that everybody else in the industry would probably just call it a platform. But I tried to stay away from that term because I wanted to evoke the idea of both the business side of it as well as the technology that it has to be this you know, repeatable process, this repeatable capability that we can throw lots of things in, get lots of stuff out in a relatively short and, and painless process. Yeah, I like that too. Because also when you say platform, I think that's a term that gets convoluted with other people's ideas of what a platform is. It means a lot of different things within tech. And... I think the factory aspect underlies the supply chain and the, I guess, the input that you would need in order to, to get that desired output. Like it's not just that like you can just slap on a fintech service to your bank and, and you're good to go. There's a whole infrastructure within that new product that you've just attached to your business that needs to be developed so that you can actually have a solution. And it also kind of, it belies the idea that 
banks themselves are don't do a great job of innovating on the tech side of things. They don't spend a lot of money on tech and they don't spend a lot of money on tech talent. And so I feel like, and, and you, you, know, you may or may not be implying this, but when you say FinTech factory implies that you have to have the means of production in the form of talent and resources in order to actually make the whole thing go. And then you also had a nice quote in the article that I was going to bring up calling, uh, stop installing escalators on horse and buggies. And I think that's, that's similar to that point. Well, I brought that up because, you know, if you ask many bankers, you know, what's your differentiation in the market? They'll say, oh, it's our customer experience. Customer experience is the most important thing in the world. And I actually have a bit of an issue with that, Scott, and I'll tell you why. It's, I don't think that the customer experience is that much better in any one bank than another. You know, yes, there might be some design aspects to it, but, you know, we were getting to a point where there's there's a high degree of parity in customer experience. And so my example was, you know, the the, the horse buggy. And I have a picture where I slapped like a picture of a, uh, I, I do a present in presentations. I, you know, put the picture of the horse buggy up there and I make a joke that, yeah, I went to the National Horse and Buggy Association meeting recently. And, you know, they're all a buzz about this, this really new innovation in the customer experience. And it's an escalator. Because, yeah, you know how hard it is to get into those buggies. you got to lift your leg up and get into it. Now there's an escalator. And my point is, it's like, does that improve the customer experience? Yes, it does. Is it a good investment for them to make? No, because the underlying product, the horse buggy, is you know near obsolete. So the point is, you know, adding one more feature to the checking account is ridiculous when you look at what like a Cash App or a Yada or a Robinhood or Acorns offers. They've completely kind of reinvented the checking account. And here are the banks, you know, worrying about, you know, one more feature, you know, to make it easier to access your checking account when customers are like, oh, what's the checking account? <laughs> That's a good point. So I don't want to take up too much of your time today. And I appreciate all the, the wisdom that you've been sharing today. One of the things I want to close off on is we've talked a lot about the traditional midsize banking infrastructure and their relationship with fintech. And I think that's that's good because that's that's you know exactly your expertise, but that's also where a lot of the collaboration and partnerships have been happening in the United States within the fintech ecosystem or between those two parties. What we haven't really touched on is the large banks. And I know you, you've shared some articles on this as well about how large banks are entering the fintech space and, and what makes a large bank different than a community bank innovating. I know that in, in many ways, large banks have a, you know, they're a little bit behind the eight ball in terms of competing directly with some of these fintechs, some of which that you just mentioned, but they have a lot of money and they have all the regulation and laws that they need. And I'm wondering what, what is it like for a large bank to innovate and how is that different from a fintech or a community bank offering those services? And you know, going over the next you know few years, ten years, as these different entities compete and partner with one another, what's what's that going to be like? What does it mean when a J.P. Morgan or a Goldman Sachs offers many of the same fintech services that are are being offered in the market today? So I'm overall, Scott, very bullish on the bank's opportunities in, in this space. And I know there's a lot of folks who look at that and go, Ron, you're, you're crazy. DeFi is going to put all these banks out of business. And that's a different argument for a different time. But each come with sort of different strengths and challenges. 
you know, most mid-sized banks I talk to look at JP Morgan's news that they are investing $12 billion in technology, and they go, we don't even have $10 billion, $12 billion in assets, let alone $12 billion to spend on IT. But on the other hand, let's go back to the discussion around specialization and focus. And I think this is a very important trend in the banking market. And this is the challenge for JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, the you know, Wells Fargo Citibank is that, yes, they might have $10 billion or $12 billion to spend on technology, but to spend all that money, they have the trouble of focusing in because most of the, the focus areas are generally too small niches for them. They, you know, wanna, they want the big markets. You know, they want the business with the Walmart who or the Amazon that's got you know the, the reach. And it's harder for them to do a hundred partnerships to, to reach that scale than doing one partnership, you know, at the big scale where it would be very hard for a mid-sized bank to meet all of Amazon's merchant lending needs like a Goldman Sachs could do. So both have challenges. Both, you know, obviously the, the banks, the mid-sized banks look at the large banks and go, boy, they've got more money than God. So they, you know, can, can afford to do this stuff, but they don't have the agility or the nimbleness to meet some of the niche opportunities that the mid-sized banks do. But, you know, with the size comes, you know, a lot of advantages in terms of being able to invest in these technologies. And I don't think they have challenges in innovating. Scott. JP Morgan's got a good history of, of a lot of in, innovative efforts. Not all of them necessarily have succeeded like Finn, but that's fine. I still believe that, that Bank of America still holds the largest number of um, blockchain-related patents than anybody in the world. So you know they may have some challenges in actually monetizing some of that, but they've been doing a lot of innovation. Bank Wells Fargo has got some certain challenges there as well, more from the cultural and business side. And you know, Citibank's got an investment group that's doing a lot in terms of creating innovative products and services that I know because I've talked to some folks, then they're not, not just coming out yet. So I think they are each have sort of their own strengths and challenges, but I'm I'm pretty bullish that both the large and the mid-sized institutions you know, we'll come out with some good stuff over the next couple of years to, co to compete in this market. You know, the, the challenge we've got is, again, both back to terminology. Fintech's a funny term. Everybody wants to be a fintech and everybody is a fintech. But, you know, in the fintech world, there are companies like yours at Currency Cloud, which partner with and sell to financial institutions. And then you've got the Chimes and Robin Hoods of the world who, to a large extent, compete with the banks. But interestingly, you know, Chime still has a couple of banks that you know are the the banks behind it because they are not a bank. So somebody's making money off of the fact that Chime's making money. Robinhood obviously sends its uh, order flow to somebody else, and so it supports other traditional financial institutions. It's you know that th this we make a little bit too much of the fintechs putting the banks out of business. It's hardly what's happening. It's just the opposite. Yeah, and I think that's a great place to to leave off. And yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. To say that fintech is replacing bank, you know, ignores the fact that all the banks are powering all the fintechs, and so everybody is working together on this. And it's not just a competition play; it's also a partnership and collaboration play. So it's going to be, you know, that's one of the reasons I like fintech. It's exciting, it's dynamic, and it's complicated. So there's no project that is easily understood or, or easily built because of these complicated factors. So anyway, I really appreciate your time, Ron. If anybody's interested in 
you know, reading some of your stuff or reaching out to Cornerstone Advisors, how would you recommend they research you? Three ways. I'm on Twitter at rshevlin, LinkedIn at Ron Shevlin. You find me there. And uh, if you want to see some of the stuff I've written, go over to Forbes, go to the fintech section in money and or just do a search on my name in, in Forbes and the fintech snark tank will come up. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Ron. Chief Research Advisor at Cornerstone Advisors, Senior Forbes Contributor, and the writer of the FinTech Snark Tank. So thanks a lot, Ron. Really appreciate it. I'll be uh, looking forward to reading more of your stuff as you as you publish it. Thanks, Scott. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. Take care. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.